I hit record on my device here as well, because that's how I go to the podcast. I'm still receiving more questions, and so next Sunday we'll continue this question and answer Sunday format and answer more of your questions, and we're going to divide them up. Listen, I love answering Bible questions. I love answering theological questions, doctrinal questions, maybe things that are kind of on the fringes, more, more Christian ethics questions. So even if we're not necessarily having a question to answer Sunday, reach out to me and we can conversate in person or by phone or by Facebook Messenger, or by email or by text or whatever, or maybe even some of them I'll answer in Sunday school. I loved it at my church in Alliance. For the longest time I had a, um, it was originally Sunday night, then we moved it to Wednesday night. Just a small group at my house, and we just dealt with Bible questions. And we, get, we traced a lot of rabbits and killed a few of them, but um, it was really fun. So we're dealing with these questions, and I appreciate you turning them in. The first one is really Dells more with how are Christians to impact society? How do Christians respond in society? And this one is why is it there more of a movement by Christian organizations like the Colson Center to spearhead protests for what is right? And I think this question came following a lot of the protests, which became riots uh, just over a month ago, six, six or so weeks ago. And people were asking, Questions like this. Why aren't Christians spiriting protests for what is right? And my simple answer is, I believe they are. And I believe they are. The Colson Center, Focus on the Family, many of them have done many different things. So, for example, uh, just over a year ago, Focus on the Family organized. Focus on the Family is a Christian organization focused on the family, if you didn't get that, if you don't know of it, founded by James Dobson many, many years ago. And they had a rally, a different, a, a, a Christian type of rally at Times Square for the sanctity of life. And that was just over a year ago. Every January, there's a different rally in Washington, D.C., also for the sanctity of life. So things like that are going on. Um, I think there's more coming up. If you remember Promise Keepers, Promise Keepers was quite popular in the 1990s, and they're actually starting again. And, and Pro Promise Keepers had this big, huge rally in 97, I think. Uh, maybe it was like a, supposed to be a million-man thing in Washington, D.C. So there are different things going on. Um, we can always use more, and Christians do need, to, do need to talk about peaceful protest, you know, and how to keep things from getting out of hand. But also, um, with this question, it reminds me that I probably need to make sure I'm communicating things that I hear about to you. So if I do hear about different rallies, different things going on, different peaceful protests for what is right, I'll try to pass them on to you. Uh, there was supposed to be a Christian gathering um, early June, a Christian gathering in downtown Youngstown. It really wasn't a protest. It was just a major Christian gathering that we were invited to, and it actually got canceled, but they're looking to do it next year. It's more of a prayer gathering. So those are those, there, there are things like that going on as well. So at this time, I'm going to invite our worship team up to lead when we all get to heaven, verses 1 through 2, and then we'll answer questions 2 and 3. Children are dismissed after this hymn. So sing these first two verses, and then children will be dismissed. You can remain seated as we sing these two verses if you'd like. If you want to stand, you can stand.
singing for about heaven for a reason right now and one is we always should be singing about heaven and looking forward to heaven children is missed by the way to junior church let me repeat that again but another is i'm going to answer some questions about heaven by the way um i'm just answering uh, five questions today next week i got six and i've still got a few extra so i might even have seven or eight uh next week we're going to get into some really meaty questions like where did evil come from you know, where did evil come from? Also, how do we interpret things like predestination and election? Somebody gave me that question on Tuesday, and it was funny the way they, the way they submitted it to me. They said, if you dare, talk about this. So I'm going to dare. But also, there were some other really deep, meaty questions that we're going to ta- try to tackle, try to tackle next week. And um, don't be afraid to reach out to me with follow-up. So right now, the next question deals with heaven. Will we recognize our family and friends in heaven? And this question has two parts. One part is memory. And the second is, how would we recognize loved ones? Uh, will heaven be physical? Will we have bodies? So actually, those are kind of four questions in, in the one question. You know, will heaven be physical? Will we have bodies? And, you know, will we have memory? And, and the simple answer is yes, I believe we definitely, matter-of-factly, for sure, will recognize our family and friends in heaven. The parable of the rich man and Lazarus, which you can read later on in Luke 16, 19 through 31, shows people recognizing each other in heaven. Now, that's a parable, which means it may or may not be a true story. A parable is a story that comes alongside to teach. But still, I don't think, I absolutely do not think that Jesus would lead us astray with a parable. Plus, get this, this is very interesting. The parable of the rich man and Lazarus is the only parable that Jesus gave with an actual person's name. Lazarus. The other parables of people didn't have names. Lazarus has a name. And so some people think, you know, that one, Jesus knew of this real story. And and that's possible. And I'm not really going to teach the parable to you. But right now, what, what, what we see in that parable, what we can take from that parable is the rich man and Lazarus seem to recognize each other across the chasm. But this gets into a broader topic. But when we talk about heaven, there is the present heaven... And then the future new heaven and new earth. Okay, so the future new heaven and new earth is Revelation 21 and 22. Sometimes the present heaven is called the intermediate heaven. And by the way, I believe we will recognize each other in both the intermediate heaven and the future new heaven and new earth. And by the way, let me say right now, I love talking about heaven. Uh, I did a sermon series on heaven uh, in 2016, one of my favorite series to preach. I led a Sunday school class on heaven as well. We don't talk about heaven enough, so that's why I'm going to go a little bit longer with this. So present heaven and future heaven. And I believe we're going to recognize family and friends in both. To be sure, the new heaven and new earth will be a physical, real place. We will have resurrected bodies. In 1 Corinthians 15, the apostle Paul calls Jesus... The first fruits of the resurrection. And now let me look at, let's look at some more scripture passages. In Revelation 6, 9 through 11, it describes people with physical bodies talking to God. And they will likely be, that likely will be during the tribulation period. 
And these are martyrs who died and went to be with God in heaven during the tribulation period. And it describes them with real voices, white robes on, physical bodies in a physical place. And by the way, that's the intermediate heaven. That's the present heaven. That's the present heaven when the, where the apostle Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Jesus told the thief on the cross... Today, you'll be with me in paradise. So that's the present heaven. It's not the new heavens and new earth yet. It's not when, when we get our resurrected bodies yet. It, but still, it describes it in physical terms. In Revelation 7, 9 through 11, we have a great multitude of people worshiping God in heaven. This means they have bodies and they have voices. And that is still, by the way, the intermediate heaven. So I believe the intermediate present heaven and the future heaven and new earth are physical places and we will have bodies. The other part of this question concerns memory. Remember that memory makes us who we are. And so all or some of our memory must carry on to heaven. All or some of our memory must carry on to heaven. And I want to say something right now. Christians are woefully negligent studying heaven. And because of that, we make grievous errors in things we say to each other, to our children, our grandchildren, and other ways. And there's no excuse for it. You know, to study heaven, we look at Genesis 1 through Revelation 22, and we look at different places where the Bible talks about heaven. I've just cited a few. There's some good different books that I can recommend. Randy Alcorn's uh, Tome on Heaven is phenomenal. Um, there's another one by Paul Enns, E-N-N-S, Heaven Revealed, which is really good. Another one by um, Chip Ingram, a really good book on heaven. You know, we have to be careful because what we, in, get, in, we, what we get into is what Randy Alcorn calls Christoplatonism. It's mixing Christian thought with Platonic thinking. Plato certainly was a philosopher. And Plato's philosophy taught that anything in the material world was bad. Anything in the material world was bad. And so they end up teaching that heaven is just us floating around on clouds, you know, singing together, playing a harp, maybe being angels. And that's totally untrue. The Bible never, ever, ever gives that picture of heaven. Heaven is a real place which we can, get, which we can look forward to. And think about it. If, if, if we don't have our memory, we are a different person. If we, if we don't have our memory, if, our, if there's a memory wipe, we are essentially annihilated. That's not what the Bible teaches the Bible teaches we will recognize each other. We will have memory, some or all of our memory in heaven. Um, we can talk more about this, but let me get into one thing Randy Alcorn writes. Randy Alcorn says, Scripture nowhere suggests a memory wipe causing us not to recognize family and friends. In fact, if we wouldn't know our loved ones, the comfort of an afterlife reunion spoken of in 1 Thessalonians 4, 4 14 through 18, would be no comfort at all. Think about that. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 14 through 18, the Apostle Paul encourages the Thessalonians of a comfort in an afterlife reunion. If we don't know our loved ones, that scripture is wrong. And the Bible is not wrong. The, inspired, the Bible is inspired by God. God breathed. We will recognize our loved ones. Theologian J.C. Ryle said of this passage, There would be no point in these words of consolation if they did not imply the mutual recognition of saints. The hope with which he cheers wearied Christians is the hope of meeting their beloved friends again. 
In the moment that we who are saved shall meet our several friends in heaven, we shall at once know them, and they will at once know us. Further, at the transfiguration, the three disciples recognized Moses and Elijah, even though they weren't told who the two men were. And they couldn't have previously known what they looked like. Think about that. That's Matthew 17, 1 through 4. Amazing. You know, they just recognized Moses and Elijah. How they recognize them? This may suggest that we will instantly recognize people we know of, but have not previously met. Perhaps as a, re- as a result of distinguishing characteristics emanating through their physical appearance. If we will recognize people we haven't known on earth, surely we will recognize people we have known. So that's, I, I'm tempted to go on with that um, question, but we're going to stop there and we're going to sing when we all get to heaven, verses 3 through 4 at this point. Thank you, Cheryl. I'm really grateful for that. So we got another question about heaven, but first let me remind you, something that separates Christianity from other religions, especially Eastern religions, is we're called to use our brain. We're called to use our reason. We're called to use our mind. You know, certainly under, under you know, um, certainly with the word of God and, you know, seeking the Holy Spirit, we're called to use our mind. You know, we're not called to divorce our mind when we study, uh, divorce from our mind when we study God's word. And, you know, actually logic in the mind is, is, is proof of God. I saw a great video from William Lane Craig last week. They make these like neat animated videos about mathematics being proof of God, you know, because all these things work, you know, it's really awesome. We're called to use our brain. And even as we deal with these things about heaven, these questions about heaven, remember in Genesis 1 through 2, God created everything and he created everything good. And if you jump from Genesis chapters 1 through 2 to Revelation 21 and 22, it seems like Revelation 21 to uh, chapters 21 and 22 are a restoration of the perfect creation that God had intended, only it's going to be far better. It's going to be far better. So when we study heaven and think about heaven, the first place we might want to look is Genesis 1 and 2. And the second place, Isaiah 60 seems to talk a little about heaven. Isaiah 65 talks about the millennial reign as well as heaven. Revelation 21 and 22 talks about heaven. First Thessalonians 4, 14 through 18, as I just referenced. Revelation 6, 9 through 11, as I referenced. Revelation 7, 9 through 11. There's many different passages. It's called uh, kind of systematic theology, where you study a, a topic by looking at all the different passages throughout the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, where something is talked about. But you also have to use your mind, use your reason. And that's why I said again, if we had a memory wipe and we totally forgot everything, everything, use your mind because you have one now and you will then, you'd be a different person. You'd be annihilated. You would cease to exist, you know, and obviously, as the scriptures had said, we see them recognizing each other. So now will our pets be there? Will our pets be in heaven? I remember a Twilight Zone episode, which I want to share with you about, uh, share about with you. A Twilight Zone episode. Hyder Simpson. You guys remember the Twilight Zone, right? How many remember the Twilight Zone? Victoria, you remember the Twilight Zone? No. It's before your time. It's before my time. I saw on reruns, though. Hyder Simpson. Hyder Simpson is an elderly mountain man who lives with his wife, Rachel, and his hound dog, Rip, in the backwoods. Rachel does not like having the dog indoors, but Rip, he saved Hyder's life once, and Hyder refuses to part with him. Rachel has seen some bad omens recently and warns Hyder not to go raccoon hunting that night. When Rip dives into a pond after a raccoon, Hyder jumps in after him. But only the raccoon comes up out of the water. 
The next morning, Hyder and Riff wake up next to the pond. When they return home, Hyder finds that neither Rachel, the preacher, nor that neither Rachel, comma, the preacher, nor the neighbors can hear him or see him. They are under the impression that he has died. Walking along the road, Hyder, that's the hunting man, and his dog, Rip, encounter an unfamiliar fence, and they begin to follow it. They come to a gate tended by a man who Hyder initially believes to be St. Peter. Explaining that he is only a gatekeeper, the man explains that Hyder, Hyder, the man, the human man, can enter the Elysian fields of the afterlife. Simpson is appreciative, but disheartened to hear that neither raccoon hunting nor any of his other usual pleasures can be found inside. He is told that Rip, the dog, cannot enter and will be taken elsewhere. Hyder angrily declines the offer of entry and decides to keep walking along the, inter- the eternity road. And he says, any place is too highfalutin for Rip is too fancy for me. Later, Hyder and Rip stop to rest and are met by a young man who introduces himself as an angel dispatched to find him and bring them to heaven. When Hyder explains his previous encounter, the angel tells him that the gate was actually the entrance to hell. The gatekeeper had stopped Rip from entering because Rip, the dog, would have smelled the brimstone inside and warned Hyder that something was wrong. The angel says, you see, Mr. Simpson, a man, well, he'll walk right into hell with both eyes open, but even the devil can't fool a dog. As the angel leads Hyder along the eternity road toward heaven, the angel tells Hyder that a square dance and raccoon hunt are scheduled for that night. He also, assures, he also assures Hyder that Rachel, who will soon be coming along the road, will not be misled into entering hell. The closing narrative is travelers to unknown regions would be well advised to take along the family dog He could just save you from entering the wrong gate. At least it happened that way once in a mountainous area of the twilight zone. I'm going to just fast forward a little bit here. I believe the Bible makes quite clear that animals are in heaven. That doesn't mean your pet is resurrected to heaven. Okay, so... Genesis 1.30 says, And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has a breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food, and it was so. That passage references animals in the Garden of Eden and also references the breath of life in them. And that's important because this was pre-fall. This was before Genesis 3 when creation fell. So animals were in paradise when God first created it prior to the fall of man. And in the eternal heaven, in Revelation 22, it seems... That the heaven is a reflection of the first Garden of Eden. We will see a tree of life again in Revelation 22 too. As there was a tree of life in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 2.9. We see a river in the eternal heaven in Revelation 22.1. We see two rivers in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2.10 and 13. It does seem that the eternal New Jerusalem heaven is going to be like the Garden of Eden was meant to be only much better. It would seem that since animals were in the first garden, they will be with us in eternity. Let's talk about that for just another moment. Psalm 104 is all about animals. And then we get to verse 30. Psalm 104 verse 30. And it references renewing them. This seems to mean maybe 
that they're resurrected. Now, that's one verse in the whole Bible. Now, there are lots of verses where it references heaven with animals in it. So it seems quite clear to me that animals are in the new heaven and new earth. But there is one verse talking about renewing them. Uh, You know, some things to remember. Heaven will be awesome with or without your pet. Heaven will be with God in paradise. Another thing, don't discourage people from grieving the loss of an animal. Uh, That's appropriate. God created animals for us, and we are sad when they leave us. By the way, along those lines about grieving an animal, um, it used to be in an agricultural society, kids actually learned about death through animals dying. So this idea of when a goldfish dies and the kids at school, so you go get a goldfish real quick before they get home, it might be a bad idea. It's a way to learn about death and learn about the fallen world we live in. Um, I believe the Bible teaches us not to abuse animals. We're to take care of them. In Romans 8, one more passage, Romans 8 teaches us that all creation is waiting redemption. And many believe that it's clear that includes animals. So that's my second question on heaven for today. Now we're going to sing, I know whom I have believed. I'm going to invite Stephen, Joyce, and Cheryl up for that. And you can remain seated unless the It's a beautiful song to go into this next question. Will, if a person was raised in a Christian home, and you know deep down they believe, but for whatever reasons, they don't practice any religion, are they saved? Are they saved? And this is one of the hardest questions because it's it's an emotional question, you know. And so let me do my best. Only God knows... If someone is truly saved, I don't know that. I will never condemn somebody to hell. Um, I never know if, even if somebody rejected Christ and then they died and I didn't see him that last week, I never know if they accepted Christ as Lord and Savior in that last week. So I would never condemn somebody to hell. In fact, I know a true story. A guy uh, had rejected Christ all his life and he was in a bad car accident and he was in a coma and he almost died. And if he would have died, the family and friends would have thought he died rejecting Christ. But what they did not know, they do know because he ended up living, what they did not know is just a few days, maybe even less than that, before that car accident, this man had accepted Christ as Lord and Savior. So we never know. Um, On one hand, I believe that God's grace is more than we can even begin to understand. On the other hand, if one truly knows Jesus, one would expect they would live life with Jesus. So in this question, it's, it's, this question is saying that we know deep down this person really does believe, but for whatever reasons, they don't practice any, any religion. Bless you. Um, so if we're called as Christians to live life with Jesus, in a relationship with Jesus... And so, on one hand, once again, I believe God's grace is more than we can even begin to understand. But on the other hand, if we truly know Jesus, I'm hopefully going to walk with Jesus and live with Jesus. It's in 1 John. I want to say it's 1 John 3. I don't know. Ask me later. I can give you the passage. Uh, John, people had been asking John about these people who had left them who they thought were believers but had left them. And John says they went out from us because they were never really a part of us to begin with. So it's really hard to know. You know, I've sat with people before and other pastors, and I remember one particular pastor telling me, 
that um, he has known people who he knew totally for sure, completely for sure were saved, and they walked away from the faith. And I thought, how do you know totally for sure that somebody is saved? We just don't know for sure. But I do know we're called to live life with Jesus. In John 15, Jesus says that he is the vine, we are the branches. We are called to live life with him, with him. We live life with Jesus by spiritual disciplines, which includes church, small groups, Sunday school, daily time with the Lord. The Christian life is not simply about fire insurance, but living life with Jesus now in a relationship with him. So I would never condemn somebody to hell, but Jesus does say that we are known by our fruits. And that's uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 16. We're known by our fruits. And so do, do the patterns of our behavior reflect that we know Jesus and we live life, life with Jesus and we're a follower of Jesus? Now, I want to add a little bit more to this that's, that, that wasn't in my notes. You know, we're not saved by works. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 makes it clear. We're saved by faith through grace. Our salvation is a gift of God. Nobody could earn their salvation. So we're not saved by works. We don't have to, we don't do good works to earn our salvation. But our good works and our life um, following Jesus shows who we belong to. It shows, it shows that we are followers of Jesus. It shows what team we're playing on, so to speak. I do not believe in eternal security if eternal security means that we say a prayer of salvation and think that that is a get-out-of-hell-free card, all right? Too often, people think that way. Then go forward at some evangelism crusade, you know, Billy Graham of the past, and pray a sinner's prayer, and it's a get-out-of-hell-free card. And they don't really live life with Jesus. They don't, they don't invest their life in Jesus' kingdom. If that's the case, I don't really believe that person or people like that would be eternally secure. Now, only God could condemn somebody to hell, but I'm just saying I wouldn't trust your salvation in a prayer of salvation if that's all it is. I do believe in eternal security for those that make a commitment to Jesus and their patterns of life reflect that commitment. Their patterns of life, they are living life with Jesus. They are following Jesus to their life. To many people, too many people, T-O-O, -O, too many people, too many Christians are trifling with the holiness of God and the sinfulness of sin. God is holy. And that's why sin is so sinful. Because, you know, we commit divine treason against Almighty God when we sin and we go against Him. And that's nothing to trifle with. I've heard one say that if we don't want to live life with Jesus now... God honors that free will and does not send us to heaven. You hear that? If we do not want to live life with Jesus now, God honors your free will and does not send you to heaven. In other words, if we don't want to live life with Jesus now, why would we want to live with him in heaven for all eternity? So, and, and I think that comment, that statement from a person I really respect has some merit. You know, we're called to be followers of Jesus and live life with Jesus. And this is a really good question. Bottom line, I can't really answer it completely. Meaning, you know, if, if deep down they really believe in Jesus, hopefully they truly are saved. But 2 Corinthians 13.5 says to examine ourselves and make sure we're in the faith unless we fail the test. And I believe the true test is repentance, but it's also to our patterns of our, our, our patterns of life following Jesus. So I would keep praying for that person, and hopefully their 
maybe the patterns of their life re reflect that, but maybe they're just not invested in a church community. And in that case, they're missing out on a lot of what God offers because we live life with Jesus through the community that Jesus has, which is called the church. And in his, historically, and this is especially true in persecuted countries, the church is a privilege to be a part of. It's a big deal to be part of the church. That's why excommunication in olden times, like historically, like the first few centuries of the church, was a big deal. We needed each other, and we should need each other now. The church should be a major privilege to be a part of. So, you know, uh, we're called to live life with Jesus now. And hopefully, you know, this person truly is saved. And I just keep that as a matter of prayer. But that's my answer for that. We're going to sing the next two verses of I Know Whom I Have Believed. Believe it. Okay. Last question. And another good one. Another one that's not, you know, uh, black and white. You know, a little, another, another kind of difficult question for today. When can Christians defend themselves? If a madman asks you to deny the faith, but does no good because they're a madman, they're a psychopath, should we deny the faith? What about mob violence, trying to take your cross or Bibles or pictures of Jesus? How is it helpful to go underground as a church when going underground means that you cannot share the gospel? But if you're not underground and you just deny Jesus, you are alive to share the gospel. And that's a really good question. Um, and that's several questions in one, if you didn't notice that, several questions in one. So I'm going to do my best to take a stab at this. And um, that's funny, it said take a stab, and this is a violent question. So I'm just seeing if you're with it. You know, this also corresponds a little bit, by the way, to murder in the Old Testament. So earlier today, I was asking another question. Somebody came and said, hey, I have another question. And, and it dealt with, well, you know, the Ten Commandments says thou shalt not murder. But what about the wars in the Old Testament? And let me just answer that one real quickly alongside this. Uh, murder, when the Ten Commandments talk about murder, thou shalt not murder, this is, that's talking about as, as, as citizens, you know, as just regular Joe Smith citizens, we're not to take the law into our own hands and just go out and kill somebody, you know. Or we're not to, you know, take properties and kill somebody so we can take their property. We're not supposed to do that. That's totally different than a government in a, in a certain um, careful way deciding that they really need to go to war over something. And we're going to come back to that in a minute. And by the way, the, that brings up, of course, the wars in the Old Testament. And there's many different views on that, but those were wars where the Israelites were going in to take possession of the promised land. Now, who owned the land? God. So God definitely has the right to give the land back to Israel. But that sounds maybe harsh to some people. So there are different views on how they took the land. And one view uh, is that it was God's judgment on those nations in Canaan at the hands of the Israelites. And that's the best view that I've heard. It's, it's a very simple view, but if we look at, if you study the culture when the Israelites went into the promised land and you study that culture uh, the, uh, of, the, of the Canaanites, the, it, their worship included child sacrifice, temple prostitution, and many, many, many things that are just hard to even talk about here. So it seems as though God was judging them at the hands of the Israelites, and God was creating a Jewish nation state. And we can talk more about that, but I hope you understand it's a little different between murder and a just cause for a just war. So here we see this tough one, which may need further conversation. And by the way, if you have follow-ups, I'm glad to talk to you, have a sit-down. 
about, about these, any of these questions more. The, so this question kind of dealt with persecution, but also dealt with mob violence. So let me separate um, state-sanctioned persecution versus individual persecution, okay? So if somebody comes to you and says, deny Christ or you die, you are being persecuted for your, for your faith in a way, but that's not state-sanctioned persecution, okay? Now, it is still persecution, and, and, and I, would, I would still encourage you, stay true to Christ. Don't deny Christ in that, in that instance. But what we're seeing in North Korea, in Iran, in India, in China, in most of Africa, in many other countries, especially Muslim extremist countries, but also Buddhist and Hindu areas, is we're seeing state-sanctioned persecution. And that's when we deal with the underground church. And so this question also um, was asked about the underground church. But... In actual persecution, Christians are never called to defend themselves. In, in the New Testament, you never see an exhortation for Christians to defend themselves in actual persecution. We're called to understand that they are really persecuting Jesus, not us. You know, that is different. They're, they're persecuting Jesus, not us, so Jesus can defend himself. If we take matters into our, our own hands, in a way... We are saying Jesus can't defend himself, so we're going to take matters into our own hands and, and kill these people. And that's not what we're called to do. Jesus can handle it. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 19, Jesus says, But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. Along those lines, 2 Timothy 3.12, it's not in the handouts that you get, but 2 Timothy 3.12, the Apostle Paul says, everyone who wants to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now, I hope we all, you know, if we had to raise our hands, would say we want to raise our hands to say we want to pursue godliness and live godly in Christ Jesus. In that case, we have to be prepared. It may not be an easy life. We'll suffer persecution. The underground church is sharing the gospel by marketplace evangelism. So the church is underground meeting for worship, but they still have jobs, they still have occupations, etc. And it's very interesting because the church is exploding in these areas. Get this, sometimes God does do more through our death than through our life, and that's counterintuitive. I, I think one reason the church is exploding in this underground church environment is because God, is, God also refines the church. Nobody's standing up saying, I believe in Jesus half-heartedly when they could lose their life or lose their job or lose their occupation. So in that case, the underground church is exploding. So much so that in China, I've shared this before, in China, Christians will soon outnumber communists. Even though technically to be a Christian, a Bible-centered Christian in China is illegal. Now, China does have the state church, and, but... That's a state church, and the state has authority over the church and wants you to adhere to certain communist teachings and things like that. So the church is growing in China, even though it's underground, but they're probably growing through marketplace evangelism. They're out in the community. You know, I have a good friend. Well, she was a good friend. I haven't talked to her in a long time because she's a missionary now. And I grew up with her in high school, and she's a missionary in what they call tea house nations. That means she's in a persecuted region. And so to be a missionary in that area, you have to do marketplace missions. She sets up a um, – she, she does women's um, 
women's care and women's support and things like that. She's a single woman, and she's reaching people for the gospel that way. Um, it, it's not unlike, really, this just came to my mind, athletes and actions and athletes and action and crew and these things. They have missionaries that go over and they do sports as a ministry in persecuted countries, so they're allowed to get in. Teachers will teach English, so it's marketplace evangelism in that way. Now, back to defending ourselves, though. I think Christians can defend ourselves. However, we should not jump to that. St. Augustine wrote up what, what has become known as the just war theory. The just war theory. To an extent, we can apply this principle. Uh, it had three main parts. Three main parts. Number one, a war needed to be waged by legitimate authority. Legitimate authority. This means that first we should try contacting the police. Number two... The war needed to be a just cause. There had to be a just cause. So you think about the Holocaust. You know, that, was, that would be a very just cause to go to war to, to, to stop that, you know, type of thing. Number three, the war needed to have the right intentions. You know, so I believe we need to exhaust as many peaceful things before we get to violence. Remember, Jesus taught to turn the other cheek in Matthew 5, 38 through 40. In Romans 12, 14 through 20, it says this. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low positions. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible... As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take vengeance, my dear friends. I'm sorry. Do not take revenge, my dear friends. But leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So there's a difference between... State-sanctioned persecution, Christians are never called to defend themselves. And, and even if it's not state-sanctioned, but is somebody actually calling you to, de to, to deny Christ, I don't think we're called to defend ourselves in those, in those cases. In other cases, mob violence, things like that, you know, somebody attacking your business or your family, it seems as though we can reason that it's okay to defend ourselves. That's using our brain and reason we can defend ourselves. But I do believe we have to be careful. We don't go to that first. We try to follow that just war theory. Call the police first. Try to use legitimate authority. Remember that people have a different worldview than we do as Christians. And we should try our best to show love. This question was asked, as I said, in conversation about riots and mob protests. Every situation is different. We cannot reason with a mob. Right? You cannot reason with a mob. In that case, we probably cannot reason. We should try contacting the police first and getting to a safe place. We, 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 we do need to be careful. Listen to this. Too often, United States Christians are quickly talking about using guns to shoot people that we are called to share the gospel with. So we do have to be careful of that. You know, the world is going increasingly secular, especially in the United States. I don't know if you've noticed that, right? I mean, it's going increasingly secular. And we are having an increasingly unchurched world out there. Sometimes they call it post-Christian, but we could turn it around and we could call it pre-Christian. That means the fields are ripe unto harvest. 
And we certainly don't want unchurched, uninterested, non-Christian, very secular people. We don't want their only understanding of Christianity to be all Christians care about is guns. You know, we certainly don't want that. We would like them to see peace. We would like them to see what, what I just read to you, Romans 12, 14 through 20. You know, bless and do not curse. If your enemy's hungry, feed him. So, you know, be careful about that. If you shoot somebody, even in self-defense, they die. They may not know Christ, and they go to hell. We're called to reach the people with the gospel, you know, and they go to hell. If they shoot us, we go to heaven. I'm not saying don't defend yourself. I think you can, but we must be prayerful and discerning, you know, and considering that. Why do? And I also have to question this. Why do we sometimes brainstorm situations that no one ever wants to be in? You know, Philippians 4.8 says to meditate on things above. You know, think on things above. True, right, pure, holy, good repute. Colossians 3 says to meditate on psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Colossians 3.1 says to set our mind on things above. And I talk to a lot of Christians, family members, friends, not just from here. They're just meditating on on violent things. And they wonder why they're so anxious. Or they're watching the news all the time. They wonder why, so, why, why they have so much anxiety. You know, we're called to reach these people with the gospel. The biblical worldview shows that our true enemy is not the person, but the sin and the devil, okay? And we're called to reach them with the gospel. So suppose your business is being attacked by an angry mob. Can you as a Christian defend your business with a gun? I believe Christians are divided on this, and I am too, if you can't tell. Firstly, leave it to the police. Biblically, it is easy, very easy, to substantiate the military using force and the police using force. It is difficult to substantiate an individual using force from the Bible. However, I do think we can use reason, that means our mind, to show that it is okay and appropriate to defend ourselves and our family. This means when the police have not arrived or cannot help, we are forced to do what we can to protect ourselves and our property. But if it is a mob, we may not get far. It would probably be wiser to use our weapons to get to a safe place in a safe situation and not try to gun down 100 people of a mob. The question was posed about groups that wanted pictures of, of uh, white Jesus taken down and wanted to take your crosses and things like that. And that's a, that's, that, that's a whole never, another genre, so to speak, you know, about all these protests and mobs and riots, you know, people that want to take your pictures of white Jesus. And again, I just want to say you can't reason with a mob. But if, it was an, if there was an organized group with civil dialogue, you can talk about pictures of white Jesus. You know, it's funny because if you go to China, they have pictures of Chinese Jesus. We go to these other countries, they have pictures that Jesus looks like them. And maybe that behooves us, I know I use like a weird word, maybe that warns us to, to not have pictures of Jesus to begin with because he wouldn't look like us. Jesus was Middle Eastern. He wasn't a white guy. And if, you could, if we could actually sit down and have civil dialogue, I'd be glad to talk to anybody about that and say, you're right, you know, Jesus wasn't white. But you certainly can't reason with a mob. These topics take discernment and wisdom and this means that we, as Christians, must be living in a relationship with Jesus, seeking his wisdom. Okay? That means living Colossians 3. Set your mind on things above, not things of this world. It means living Philippians 4, 4 through 13. Remember the apostle Paul wrote Philippians 4 to a persecuted church under, persecuted, under persecution himself. And he said, 
Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be made known to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious for anything, but in all situations, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And a peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Then he said in Philippians 4.8, think on things that are true and right, pure and holy, of good repute. Then he said in Philippians 4.13, you can do all things. Or he said, I can. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He said that to a persecuted church. Listen, Christians have gotten far too comfortable in the United States. Listen to a great sermon by John Piper earlier today about true missions. Listen, Christians are not comfortable like we are all over the world. Christianity thrives under persecution. I said this in Sunday school, and I mean it. We're not called to pray for persecution. We're not called to seek persecution. Sometimes we say we're persecuted when we're really being dumb. Okay, like I saw a video of a guy trying to go in and proclaim the gospel in that city they were calling Chaz in Seattle. That's just dumb. Don't, don't, don't walk into that, you know. We're called to build relationships with people and share the gospel through the relationship. Don't be dumb. But the Christian life is not a life of ease and comfort. It's not. It's, called, it's a life of self-sacrifice and pursuing Jesus and following him regardless of the consequence and the cost. So let me close in prayer, and then I'm going to invite Steve and Joyce up and Cheryl for the closing hymn. Let's pray. Dear Holy Father, I thank you for these questions. It does take discernment. Oh, Lord God, I pray that we are living life with you, truly in a relationship with you, so that when we encounter various trials and tribulations, and some of them where we can truly reason the best scenario is to defend ourselves, we can discern what you want us to do and how, us, how we're to react. Lord God, I'm reminded of Acts chapter 12 right now. I'm going to say the Holy Spirit reminded me of, Lord God, Acts chapter 12, where Peter was released from prison by an angel, and he left. But in another case where Paul and Silas were released from prison under persecution, and they didn't leave. They stayed, and they were able to share the gospel with the Philippian jailer. Lord God, we need your wisdom. We need your discernment. We thank you for your word. Help us studying your word, spending time with your people, spending time in prayer and in devotions and in spiritual disciplines, living the Christian life with you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're going to conclude with a, uh, a modern